Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Hip pain is a common reason people seek help from practitioners such as chiropractors. Whether it's a traumatic or repetitive sports injury or a degenerative condition, many of our professional listeners would see these cases multiple times during any given week in practice. So it's really helpful to be across this topic. We all have a range of go-to techniques when it comes to help these sorts of patients. And today we're gonna to be reflecting on where the research sits with various hip pathology and what things we need to consider in diagnosis and management. My guest today is expert associate professor, Joanne Kemp. Now, Joanne will be presenting an ACA webinar on this topic in just a few weeks time on the 20th of April. Uh, so today will be a 30 minute introduction to whet your appetite and I would strongly invite those who are interested in getting the full picture to check out the webinar. You just need to go to the webinar section on the ACA website at cairo.org.au for more information. And you can join in the webinar live, or if you happen to miss that one, uh, catch up with one of the recordings. Now back to our guest, Associate Professor Joanne Kemp is a Principal Research Fellow at La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre and is a titled APA Sports Physiotherapist of 25 plus years experience. Joanne has presented extensively on the management of hip pain and hip pathology in Australia and internationally. Her research is focused on hip pain, including early onset hip osteoarthritis in younger adults and its impact on activity, function and quality of life. She's also focused on the long-term consequence of sports injury on joint health. She has particular focus on surgical and non-surgical interventions that can slow the progression and reduce the symptoms associated with hip pain, pathology, and hip osteoarthritis. Joanne also maintains clinical practice in Victoria. Hi, Joanne. Welcome to the ACA podcast. Hi, Anthony, and thanks very much for having me. So today, the title of the podcast is The Assessment and Management of Hip and groin pain in young and middle-aged adults. I guess my first question is, is there a subset of the population who are more prone to these types of problems? Yeah, it's a good question. And to be honest with you, hip pain can affect people right across the lifespan. So you see, obviously, we, we, we know of um, hip dysplasia, which affects infants. And we, know, we now know that actually a lot of infants are not, are not diagnosed where they should be and that the acetabulum can continue to develop through adolescence into adulthood. So in young, in you know, young adolescents, you'll often see hip dysplasia. Um, and then as they mature into young adults, that's when we start to see the hip and groin you know, problems that affect athletic populations. And that's what we're going to really focus on in the webinar is, is things like FAI syndrome that affect those young and active um, young and middle-aged adults. And then as we get older, we um, certainly see hip osteoarthritis, and that can be evident, you know, from people in their mid-30s onwards, depending on what the things are that precipitated arthritis. And then there can be all of the soft tissue causes of hip pain. So, for example, in, um, you know, a really common thing that you'll see in middle-aged women is lateral hip pain that can be gluteal tendinopathy or sometimes referred to as trochanteric bursitis. So 
it, it can affect people right across the lifespan. And I think having that understanding of the different presentations at different stages can really help you try and hone in on what it is that might be causing the pain in the patient that presents in front of you. So what are the more common etiologies? And is there a sort of standard terminology or classification to describe these types of problems? Yeah, so we've, we're getting a much better picture in that young, that active young and middle-aged adult population. Um, we published a consensus paper a couple of years ago in the British Journal of Sports Medicine where we classified hip pain, so pain coming from within the hip joint as either being FAI syndrome, so that's that's classically called hip impingement, and we'll talk about that in more detail in the webinar. Um, dis hip dysplasia, acetabular dysplasia or hip instability, so that's classically where the acetabulum is um, shallower than it should be and so the hip doesn't have as much structural support and so that can create instability. And then you'll, you can also see other pathologies where the bony shape might be normal but the patient might still have other things that are contributing to their pain. So things such as labral tears, ligamentum teres tears and other things, um, you know, isolated cartilage tears as well that can also contribute to somebody's hip pain. So let's talk a little bit about femoral acetabular impingement syndrome then. Obviously, that's a, a bony change that happens um, in and around the hip joint. Is there a link between these sort of changes which typically occur in a younger person and osteoarthritis in an older person? There is. So there have been some studies that have looked at people who have the bony shape associated with femoral acetabular impingement. So when we're talking about FAI, we'll call it FAI, FAI syndrome, um, to be classified as having FAI syndrome, you need to have a particular shape of bone, but you also need to have symptoms. So if you don't have any pain, you don't have FAI syndrome, even though right. you might have the shape, the shape that's typically seen in the condition. Yes. Um, and then you need to have the signs as well. So Forgetting about the symptoms and the signs, if we just talk about the bony shape that you see in people with FAI syndrome, that can either be cam morphology, which is where you get an extra bump of bone on the head neck junction of the femur. So rather than having that nice spherical shape, it tends to be flattened out. And so that neck of the femur can um, impinge on the acetabulum and, and potentially cause pain. So that's cam morphology. Pincer morphology is when the acetabulum is deeper than it should be or it's more retroverted. And so you get that impingement because of that depth of acetabulum. And you can have mixed where you have both the cam and the pincer. So in terms of the relationship with arthritis, people who have cam morphology are more likely to develop. They do have a higher risk of developing hip osteoarthritis and needing a hip replacement in later life. And there was some work um, done by the Dutch group led by Rinche Agricola sort of in the last decade that's shown that people who do have a large bump, extra bump of bone, are probably 10 times more likely to develop hip arthritis and have a hip replacement in later life. That's the relative risk. What we need to remember, though, is it's, it's not a guaranteed thing. So it's a, when you actually look at the absolute numbers, it's only about 5% of people who have that bony shape that are the ones that do go on to develop hip osteoarthritis in later life. So that's cam morphology or that bump of bone. When we think about pincer morphology, interestingly, that seems to almost be protective for arthritis. So if you have pincer morphology and you don't have cam, you actually don't have that same risk of developing arthritis as the people who have the cam without the pincer. Right. And if, um, and if you have pincer and cam together, you still have a lower risk. And so we think it might be because the socket's just deeper all around that you actually just can't even get into those positions of impingement in the first place because your hip just doesn't move that far. And so yes. therefore, 
potentially that protects you. But we don't really know why that is the case. But certainly if you've got CAM, you do have a higher risk, but it doesn't mean that everyone's going to go on to develop arthritis. Now, I am familiar with your webinar, even though you haven't presented it yet. And one of the things that is uh, very cool in there is uh, a little visual algorithm where you go through the assessment um, of uh, hip and groin pain. Uh, again, I'll refer everyone to the webinar for that, but uh, let's just talk about some of the key aspects uh, of that algorithm. And first of all, obviously, is to look at red flags. Yeah, so look, red flags are really important um, in people who present with hip pain. Um, and there are a few really key things that I think any clinician who sees this population of patients should be aware of. So one of the really important things is that the hip is a really common point where someone who has, has a, either has cancer or has a history of cancer, particularly breast cancer and prostate cancer, that, um, that bony tumours commonly metastasize to the hip and the pelvis. And so it's, it's really important to ask someone about their history of cancer. And if they do have a history and they have pain, and that perhaps isn't responding the way you would expect it to to treatment or doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to have that mechanical relationship. Mm. I think it's really important to be aware of that. Um, stress fractures are really common. Well, they're not really common, but there's something we need to look for in people with hip pain. So particularly if you're seeing someone who is um, perhaps has a really light, a small body mass um, and who may you know, be a distance runner who perhaps has some of those energy deficiency things that we can sometimes see in our elite athletes that you need to be aware of stress fractures. Um, you know, dancers and gymnasts are also prone to stress fractures in the hip as well as long distance runners. So that's another thing. Avascular necrosis is another issue that we need to be aware of. So people who've had prolonged cortisone use, um, people who've had a history of alcohol abuse are, are at more risk of developing avascular necrosis in the hip. And then we also need to... Um, to be aware of um, potential, you know, things like acute infection. So if someone is 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 un really unwell and their pain has come on really suddenly and acutely, that we have to be conscious of that. So I think with all of these red flags, if, if somebody presents to you and it doesn't make sense, um, you know, the clinical picture doesn't fit what you would expect with a musculoskeletal condition, or they're not responding to treatment the way that you think they should be. I think we just have to have those red flags at the front of our minds. If you have any suspicion that that might be the case, because I think perhaps we see red flags maybe more commonly in the hip than some of our other peripheral joints in the body. Very good advice. Um, now, as far as distinguishing pain from the hip versus the lumbar spine or pelvis, I'd imagine uh, many chiropractors are pretty good at doing that, but what's your sort of go-to checks and what, what, do, what, do you, what criteria do you need to distinguish a hip problem from a, from a back problem? Look, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to be really certain and there's a lot, of, a lot of overlap. So you might see someone whose primary problem was originally a hip problem, but they've developed lumbar spine problems because they can't move their hip as far as they normally would. So they are loading their lumbar spine more and vice versa as well. So, but I think, so you will see a lot of overlap. It's often not clearly just one or the other. They're not mutually exclusive, but it's good to know which you think is the primary driver of their pain. And the presentation will be quite, um, quite different. So people who have pain that's coming from the hip joint itself that isn't one of those red flags, in most cases the pain is in that anterior hip groin region. Um, they sometimes around about half of them might have posterior pain sort of through the buttock, but if they don't have that anterior pain, then, it, you know, it may not be the hip. Um, limping is another really good sign. So if someone comes into your clinic and they're limping, they're, they're much more likely that their pain is coming from the hip than the lumbar spine. 
Um, and there's some good tests that you can use to rule out hip or lumbar spine. So, for example, if, if someone does repeated lumbar movements or particularly extension and rotation of the lumbar spine and it doesn't reproduce or change their pain, then probably it's not the lumbar spine. You might be looking at hip. And then the um, so it's a good test. A negative response is a good test to rule out the lumbar spine. And then in a similar way, the flexion adduction internal rotation or the FADIR test as a pain provocation test is a good way of ruling out the hip. So if you do that test and it comes back as being negative, it doesn't reproduce their pain, you can be relatively sure that probably the hip's not the cause. Straight leg raise is another good test to that if the straight leg raise um, is clear and it's negative, then it's probably not their lumbar spine. So just using some of those things can help you tease out whether it's more likely to be one or the other, bearing in mind there may well be some overlap. Yep, yep. Uh, coexistence of the two is very common, that's for sure. Um, what about um, if, if we identified that it's a, a hip problem what are the key mm. distinguishing factors between it being a joint versus muscular so this could be a psoas problem or an adductor problem for example yeah it's a good question and again it's a bit like the lumbar spine it's hard to be really clear and you do see a lot of overlap between them so people may present with both with a number of different things um there's not there's not really great tests diagnostic tests for those problems like that have a really high sensitive uh, sorry specificity where you can be sure that they um, reflect that problem. But the FADIR test that we just talked about, so the flexion adduction internal rotation, is it has a high sensitivity. So if that's negative, you can probably rule the hip out. Um, palpation I think is probably one of our strongest tools. So being able to um, accurately palpate those areas. If palpating doesn't reproduce pain, then um, it's probably not those things. Bearing in mind, though, it is quite tricky probably to accurately palpate psoas when it's coming up through the abdominal region. I think we can palpate it when it crosses the hip joint reasonably well, but otherwise it is quite tricky to palpate psoas. So palpation will give you some, some input um, where the pain is. So asking them to point to their pain can often give you some good input because those, those structures are quite even though they're all in the same area, they're actually quite yeah. distinct where you'll feel them. So if it's abdominal, it will be above where the hip is. Um, you know, if it's psoas, it'll be a little bit more medial to that. If it's hip, it'll be lower than that. And if it's adductor, they're going to point down in under their groin. So yeah. where the pain is can give you a bit of input. And then just doing your good old-fashioned um, resistance, sort of manual muscle test, resistance tests, they don't have great proven sort of diagnostic accuracy in the literature, but if you put them together you know if, if, if either stretching the muscle or making the muscle work causes pain then that gives you another clue so I think it's taking all of those pieces and putting them together gives you probably a stronger clinical suspicion on what it is that's um, causing the problem and then you can treat those things as well so um, if, if your treatment that's targeted towards psoas for example you know change psoas I think with abdominal looking at things like pain on clients' knees can sometimes give you a little information, but again, that's not totally accurate. So it's actually putting lots of pieces of the puzzle together to come up with, with your overall suspicion. So we've now done all our testing. We've identified that this is a hip. We're concerned enough to um, warrant imaging. What are we going to order, a, a, a plain film X-ray or do we go straight to MRI? Depends a little bit on what you think it is. I actually think the plain X-ray is a little bit underrated. That can give you quite a bit of information in terms of the shape of their hip. So you can look to see whether they have 
FAI syndrome, whether they have um, acetabular dysplasia, knowing that gives you a lot of clues about what else you think might be going on in that person. So I think we don't want to underestimate the value of a plain X-ray. It's cheap. Um, it's We can refer for it easily. Most um, clinicians are quite good at looking at x-rays so um, and it will show up some of our red flags as well so I probably would always start with an x-ray often patients when I see them have had that already and it often comes back as being normal so mm. often you do need to go to an MRI with these patients I guess the other thing to stress with imaging is that coming back to our red flags if you believe that someone has a red flag and you're not a, med not a medical practitioner, I actually don't ever refer off for that imaging myself. I always send them to their medical practitioner because let's say they do have a tumour in their hip or they have avascular necrosis or something. I don't want to be the one to have to break that news yes. and interpret those findings and then give them advice on where to go next. That's yes. way outside my scope of practice. So I think if you're looking for musculoskeletal, then yes, order imaging. But if you suspect a red flag, send them to the GP with a letter asking for the imaging because then it's their responsibility and not yours to interpret those and deal with them if they do come back as being positive. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so let's again assume that there's no pathology, um, that this is a, a FAI uh, that we're dealing with. Most practitioners, physiotherapists and chiropractors, I imagine, would be pretty keen to have a trial of conservative care before they jump to surgical options or start to refer out. Where's the grey line sit exactly? It's a good question. Um, I think that you... You know, we've got some pretty good evidence now that good quality conservative treatment can work really well. So I would always start with that. We also know that uh, like a good quality exercise program needs to go for three months to actually work effectively. So don't give up before the three months. But in saying that, don't wait the full three months if you're not getting any progress or any change. So if you've seen someone and you're confident, you've given them a really good quality program and that they're actually doing it and they're doing it properly and doing it well, and you're not getting any response to your treatment, I'd probably be looking at about six weeks where I would expect to see some change before yeah. I would um, think about referring on. Um, but in saying that, still letting the patient know that it can take, you know, three months or more for programs to actually be effective. And I guess letting the patient know right from the outset so that their expectations and goals aren't unrealistic and that you're both on the same page working for the same uh, end result. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you do? I mean, obviously you're going to, uh, as well as making a diagnosis, there's certain tests you're going to do to baseline a patient so that you can measure outcomes over time. What, what do you use in terms of your functional tests, um, terms of PROMs and, and other things such as that? Yeah, so the, um, testing, so with your any assessment, I think diagnosis is one part, but understanding a patient's impairments and where they're at is the other part. And so that's where some of these tests come in. So if we're just thinking about patient reported outcome measures, so questionnaires, tools like the IHOT33, which is the International Hip Outcome Tool, um, have been shown to be valid and um, appropriate for young people with hip and groin pain. Um, the HAGOS, which is the Copenhagen Hip and Groin Score, is another one that is really good to use in these um, patient groups and has been has been validated in these patient groups um, and it's really important particularly for our compensable patients that we do that but also I think just for our for any patient to be able to objectively monitor their progress and change yeah in terms of physical tests I always use um, handheld dynamometry to measure muscle strength because that gives me a really clear idea 
of where someone is at when I first see them and what it is that we need to really try and target in our exercise programs. Yeah. Um, and it also is a really good motivating tool for the patient that if, if they know you're going to measure their strength, they'll do their exercises. So I really like handheld dynamometry. Um, I also like to measure range of motion, particularly flexion range of motion. And the reason for that is it um, when you measure it with an inclinometer, it's a very precise measure. So it's quite sensitive to change over time. We also know that how far you can go into hip flexion is related to how well you're progressing. So it's a good way of, of keeping track objectively of whether someone's heading in the direction that you want them to or not and comes back to that question about is your treatment working and when should you think about referring on for surgery. So that's a nice objective way of measuring that. And then I think functional tests are important. So depending on your patient and what they need to do, tests like um, some of the hopping tests that we use in the knee can be really, really helpful in the hip. Um, measures like a single leg squat to look at control and alignment can be helpful as well. Um, the, the, with any tests, though, I think we have to be careful how accurate is the test um, like how stable is it and what does it actually mean? Because I think we can spend a lot of time doing a bunch of tests, but they don't really tell us that much about where the patient's at. They're not accurate or reliable and they don't guide our treatment. So I think yeah. we have to be careful and prior spend our time wisely because the patient's paying for your time. So spend it wisely doing the things that, are, that actually mean something. Yes, mean something in terms of accurately and meaningfully measuring progress and accurately and meaningful for the patient in terms of their activity of daily living and what they're wanting to get back to, whether it's their sport or, or just getting around. Yeah, exactly. So finishing off with just obviously um, it's not, this isn't just all about physiology. We have to consider the biopsychosocial aspects here. What are some of the things that you sort of consider when it comes to these types of patients or is it pretty much the the same for, for everyone, regardless of their presentation, you still have to think about where they're at from a, a psychosocial sense. Yeah, and I think, as, I think as clinicians who work in the musculoskeletal space, we're very good at the biological. We've done that for a long time. Um, but I think what we're starting to see in these patients is that psychological factors can play a big part. So we have a paper that's just been published where we measured um, kinesiophobia, which is fear of movement in patients with FAI syndrome. And what we found is that, that people with FAI syndrome are fearful to move. And mm. those who are fearful to move think they're worse at functional activities and have more report more pain. When you actually look at do they actually do the functional activities worse, they can do the movement just as well as someone who's not fearful, but yeah. their perception is that they don't do it as well and they are fearful to do it. And there's some, we know we have some qualitative work and others do as well that shows that these patients um, have quite strong beliefs that exercise caused their pain and that exercise is damaging for their hip joint. And so yeah. we know that exercise is really important for joint health. So trying to break down some of those fears, fear of exercise and fear of movement, perception that their structure is causing their pain when we know that these structural findings are very common in people without symptoms um, is really important. I think the psychosocial, we're still, we're still unraveling. We don't really have the answers for that yet. I think we're still, still working through that, but I think it's important just to be mindful of that with your patients and make sure that you don't just focus on the bio, but you know, it'll be different for different patients, but for a number of patients over helping them overcome those fear of fears of activity and exercise and movement can be really, really important. Fantastic. Look, I think that's great information. Um, we're uh, unfortunately not going to have time today to touch on so many of those functional assessments that I know will be in your webinar. 
and very importantly, the uh, the recommended rehab and the different gradings of the rehab, which I think will be uh, really important. And for people who are interested in this topic, uh, they'll be very keen to find out more about that. So tune into the ACA webinar when you can. And um, Joanne, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our chat. It's been really great information. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. And I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.